Hello, everybody. It's the Historical Gamer once again. You can call me Matt, and we're here for episode 36 of the Single Malt Strategy Podcast. Today, I'm joined with my trusty co-host, the Strategy Wargamer. You also know him as Jean. And we also have a returning guest, the only other individual we've had on the podcast outside of like interviews with developers, but the only fellow YouTuber that we've had on the podcast is back once again. Uh, and that is Tortuga. Welcome Tortuga. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys are having me over. Yeah. You know, it's, I think we've, uh, we've kind of been doing this for a while now and I think it's, it's fun to have John and I go back and forth about our opinions, but sometimes it can get a little bit ping pongy. So I think something that we're going to try out uh, is, you know, having uh, Tortuga on uh, when he's able and, and maybe um, some other people as well from time to time uh, to, you know, see if we can build the stable a bit, have a couple other co-hosts maybe, or uh, at least a couple other regular guests and, and just add a little bit more dynamism to, uh, to this uh, little production that we call the single malt strategy podcast. Um, but, uh, how are you guys doing today? Very well. I finished my, uh, astronomy final. So that's out the door and the whole semester is on. So I am in a good mood. I have just a whole month of nonstop Imperator action coming my way. Oh, well, that's awesome. I mean, that's obviously Imperator has come out recently. It's uh, paradox's newest entry, uh, in their, their homegrown developed studio that, that rolls out their IPs. So, you know, you've got crusader Kings, you've got EU, uh, Hearts of Iron, uh, Victoria, and uh, the the newest Paradox game out is Imperator. Came out a couple of weeks back, and uh, today we're going to talk about it a little bit. But controversy. <laughs> <laughs> but but first, before we get into it, because I know it's been a little bit controversial, uh, is just kind of check in on what you guys have been playing lately. What about you, Jean? What are you, what are you up to gaming wise, other than Imperator? Uh, well, I have been playing this game that I know you have been playing because I got it from you and, uh, not, not physically, but I mean, you influenced me to, uh, pick it up and it's Yubo. I don't want to dive too much into this because I know we're going to go off for like 45 to 50, maybe an hour or two just on u boat alone. Um, but I've been playing this game quite a bit and, uh, not really quite a bit. I've been playing this game for about an hour or two before uh, they crashed and then it crashed and crashed a couple more times on top of it. <laughs> well, it's early access, so you can't complain about any crashes. Everything is uh, critique free, right? Well, well that's thing, how early access works. Well, the thing is funny is like, I was just like, after it crashed, like uh, I was playing for 40 minutes, it crashed like six times. And I was like, and I remember uh, I contacted you on Twitter. I'm like, how many crashes have you had? Cause you, I saw on yours, you had a, a lot of hours into it. And you were like, I have been playing for five hours. I have not had one crash. I'm like, okay, there's something going on. <laughs> yeah. I, I have not had a single crash yet. Now, granted, I think I'm only like six or seven hours in. So certainly not an exhaustive look at the game yet. Uh, but you know, I've, it's been relatively stable for me. I've heard it has, um, depending on your machine, a lot of people have had performance issues and also bug issues. So I wonder if it's just, you know, the, the, the makeup of my machine is optimized for what they have and they haven't gotten around to, uh, to making all the different hardware components and whatnot works seamlessly together. You also run it through, um, you boot windows on a Mac, right? So maybe that has something to do with it too. Yeah, it could be the bootcamp, but but what I think it is is the AMD uh, graphics drivers. I'm running an AMD 560, so it's a mid-range card. And I know you're running a 1080, I think. So I think, and you're running NVIDIA. So I think that's probably where I'm probably going wrong. Well, I mean, that's probably where the disconnect is happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I don't know. I haven't really paid that close attention to who all is having the issues. I know, Tortuga, have you had any issues with U-Boat? Because I know you've been playing it a bit, too. Yeah, no, I've I played a fair bit of it, and I don't think I've had any issues with it as far as it crashing from graphical or, like, overstressing my graphics card. But you also have a 1080, so you, yeah, you yeah, bought your 1080, <laughs> and then I, I realized you were getting a good price on it, and then I bought my 1080, and it was just... I feel left out here. Went up twenty percent that that week. I'm sorry, hi Sean. I would have I would have forced <laughs> you to get one too had I known you at the time. <laughs> well, I didn't. You know what's funny? Uh, after this happened to me, I put a Twitter poll and I said I want to know what you strategy gamers use. Uh, and I wrote like AMD 500 series and a thousand series for Nvidia. So um, apparently, there's about over 10% of people still use basic integrated graphics to play strategy games. I, that was kind of shocking. I thought it was going to be zero. I'm um, surprised it was that low. <laughs> really? Thought, uh, no, I mean, honestly, like that let's, let, there are a lot of strategy games that are not super graphic, graphically intensive. I would argue most of them aren't. Um, and uh, a lot of computer or a lot of war gamers are, are uh, running older machines. If you look at the breakout of, of who has what. So I'm kind of surprised it's not higher. I mean, well, there's the, there's a, at the very least, there's the stereotype of, of war gamers as being a little bit older. And, you know, that would tend to imply maybe older machines. Yeah, that's that. Uh, but that's that's an assumption. I mean, I don't know. That's that's just. Well, I, you know, I think your story is kind of like probably a really good one, because uh, when I asked you, uh, you said you originally started out with like a mid range car, which was like a AMD 550 or 560. Yeah, my first rig was a uh, 550 Ti and I had a mid range CPU. So. Um, you know, and I, and that was more than good enough to play everything I was playing at the time. You know, I was playing, uh, Scourge of War. I was playing War in the Pacific, you know, those types of games, which again, older games, you know, made by, uh, or published by Matrix games. So, you know, most Matrix games aren't going to require you to have a 1080. Uh, it's just, that's just the fact. Uh, and then I upgraded to, I think it was a 760 and around, so I, I had the 550 in like 2011, Upgraded to the 760 around 2014, 2015, and then only just this last year, toward the end of 2018, did I get a did I get a high end card, uh, and I got a an Nvidia 1080, um, and then very promptly thereafter they announced the 2000 series. I'm kind of curious, Eric. Before the year 1080, would you have? Uh, I think one of the reasons why I got the 960 is because Subnautica came out, and I realized I couldn't do recordings of Subnautica on my whatever was before the 960 and I, I may, I think it was a 570. Uh, anyway, so I realized Subnautica could not run as fast as I wanted it while I was recording. And that, that was what kind of twisted my own arm into getting the, the upgrade. Uh, okay. Were you, were you able like, uh, on those kind of games, were you able to do like medium or high graphics or was it more like, it's a good question. I don't, um, I think it was just medium graphics. You mean with the 960 or before that? Oh, with the 960. Oh, yeah. With the 960, I could do probably high graphics. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, going back to the poll, so 13% had basic integrated graphics. 27% had mid-range graphics is where I'm falling in, which is the AMD 550, 560, the 1050, and uh, 1060 for NVIDIA. And then 57% of strategy gamers have the high-end high graphics card, which is 1070 and above, as well as the 570 and above for AMD House. Wow, wow. 50% for 1070 and above? That's, that really 
Actually, how many how many survey results did you get? I didn't get a lot. I got thirty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know I was one of those highest. But still, that's still crazy. <laughs> that's a high number. I just took statistics, so I'm just doing like, all right, out of this sample <laughs> population. <laughs> Be like back in like baseball. This guy's hitting a thousand. He's been to the plate once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, that is kind of interesting, though. Out of like thirty people, that that many people would have have the high end. Maybe, yeah, maybe my assumption was way off. I don't know. Do you think it's because of like games like Total War and um, Paradox? Probably. I mean, that would be the logical thing, right? That it would be games that would require it. Um, you know, if you're just playing, uh, you know, Victoria two, you probably don't need a high end graphics card. I think it's just people. Yeah. They don't play strategy games solely. You know, people play other games, you know, especially I like space games. I love those, like, God forbid you guys ever do an episode on like star citizen or something, but that, I, that is a game or game genre, which appeals to me. And those are usually pretty graphical intensive. Yeah, like Aurora 4X, man, that thing. Yeah, <laughs> That's eyesight intensive. <laughs> Spreadsheet simulator 2010. Well, it's not, that means more, more or less the same as Rule the Waves in that sense. And I love Rule the Waves, so. That's, that's true. And we got Rule the Waves 2 coming out very shortly as well. Yeah, you guys should do a podcast on that one. We will do a podcast on that one. And Mr. I created an auto battle, battle simulator yourself. <laughs> yeah, I did, That's yeah. horrible English. Tortuga, for those of you who may not know it, actually programmed a simulator for battles in Rule the Waves so that you can you don't have to play the battle out. You can actually have the computer simulate it, which is not part... If you're not familiar with Rule the Waves, it's not a feature that's built into the game. So this is, I guess, essentially it's a mod. Yeah, and, it's mod. Uh, and Tortuga coded it, and I don't know how the testing is going, but I know you started asking people to start playing with it, right? Uh, it's basically released now. I mean, it's kind of weird that I released a mod for Rule the Waves when Rule the Waves 2 is like two weeks out. <laughs> so, but Does I'll Rule the Waves 2 it. have auto battle? Because if it doesn't, you might need to see if there's a way to incorporate it. Yeah, I don't think so. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll find a way to make it work for Rule the Waves 2. Hopefully it's just a few minor tweaks. I mean, I think the base game of Rule the Waves 2 is pretty much the same, and it's mostly like differences for the aircraft capabilities, which are, yeah. are going to be new. I'm really hoping that's the case, so I don't have to change too much. Well, that's been my impression looking at the screenshots, but I'll know more in you know a few days when we get to play it. Yeah. When's the release? Is it the seventeenth? Yeah, it's next Thursday. It was supposed to come out in April. They pushed 16th. it back a month, so May sixteenth then. Uh, but the demo will be available for people to play. They can actually they have a demo copy which they're going to release. I think on the fourteenth next Tuesday. Yep. Yeah, that's what I saw. So two days before release, you can even start playing the demo. It's being released by NWS? That's right. Naval Warfare Simulations. But I don't want to railroad the podcast into an episode (laughs) on NWS, so... So the uh, podcast uh, we wanted to focus on is Imperator, and apparently there's a lot of controversy about this game. And I know we all have different views on the game, so I'm kind of very curious about uh, both Eric's viewpoint and Matt's viewpoint on um, on the game. So I know you guys both play the game uh, for quite a bit, so I'm kind of curious how do you guys feel about the game. Well, my initial, you know, I was kind of surprised, I guess. I played the game... Slightly before release, so I was playing a review copy, and I I was really impressed with it. I think before it actually came out, I had about five hours into it, 
and I enjoyed it. I thought it was gorgeous just from like a map design perspective. I thought it had a lot more what I felt. And again, this is uh, anytime you play a Paradox game for like five hours or whatever, it's more or less a cursory look at the game. Like you're not really going to get into all the nitty gritty um, within the first couple of hours. But I thought it was an interesting an interesting design, and I thought that it had a lot more depth than I was used to seeing in modern Paradox games, you know, Hearts of Iron 4 or newer. Uh, it had things like Pops included, which was kind of like a Victoria feature. It also brought in some components from Crusader Kings with the whole, you know, family lineage thing. Um, I didn't always feel like that worked perfectly in, like, a, the fact that a lot of the countries are actually republics doesn't really seem to work super well if you're trying to build a family lineage and you're tied to your nation, not to your family, unlike in Crusader Kings. So some of that doesn't work perfectly. But on the on the whole, when I first was you know playing through it, I was pleasantly surprised and, and impressed and was enjoying my time with it. And then, and then, and it wasn't even really the professional <laughs> reviews. Like a lot of the professional reviews, you know, they had some issues with it, but in general, they were pretty positive. Like if you look at PC Gamer, or if you look at even War Gamer, wasn't like outright negative. But then when it released, and ordinary people started reviewing the game, holy crap, I've never seen a Paradox game get slammed like this before. Like there were complaints about Stellaris when it came out as being somewhat sanitized and not super in-depth that was maybe a little bit too streamlined um there were complaints about hearts of iron or hearts of iron 4 uh not having enough depth and detail because a lot of people who played hearts of iron 3 wanted like a lot of the micromanagement capabilities that were in it and simply they streamlined a lot of that out of hearts of iron 4 that was one of those people um (laughs) yeah Yeah, and i mean i would say within (laughs) the paradox community there was a reasonably strong response against hearts of iron hearts of iron four but on the basis like in the masses like if you went to steam's uh you know catalog and you said like what's rated or whatever it wasn't you know it wasn't it wasn't rated disastrously it had i think a positive review score if you go now for hearts of iron four it has a very positive review 84 percent of the people both all reviews and recent reviews are 80 percent plus and it's marked as very positive um if you go into imperator and what are we like a little over a week out of launch. If you go into Imperator and you take a look at their score, it is mostly negative with a 39% positive opinion of the game. Yeah, that's Which, crazy. That's that stuns me. That just flat out stuns me. And and it was selling very well when it first came out. If you looked at Steam, it was in the top 5 selling games on Steam for at least the first 4 days that it was out. I was kind of keeping an eye on that. So at least out of the gate, it seemed to be selling very well. Um, I don't know what that all equates to in terms of copies or anything like that. Uh, Paradox seemed to indicate that it was one of their, you know, it had exceeded their, their impressions, but who knows what those, you know, what those expectations were. Um, but very shortly after it came out, you saw that, that positive score drop and drop and drop. And I thought, you know, I was kind of surprised. I know some people had some complaints with things like they like to call something called mana, where it's like you're spending points that you earn to do different things. But um, I'll let Tortuga talk a little bit more about that. I was just kind of surprised. I tracked the actual game on May 2nd. Uh, there was uh, 2,696 um, positive reviews, and there were 3,800 uh, uh, negative reviews. A week later, which is uh, May 9th, which is tonight, 
um, I tracked it. Uh, the pros are at thirty four seventy one and fifty three twenty. The pro wow. seven seventy five, but the cons went up almost fifteen hundred. Yeah, so yeah. the cons are. I mean, that's about thirty percent. You know, it's 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 a little bit lower than its current total score, thirty nine percent. But that is tracking roughly in line with where it currently sits uh, from like an overall rating perspective. But yeah, I mean, that's 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 amazing to me that it. And and part of me feels like maybe this is like a pylon effect, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear all of your your thoughts. I know I didn't get into the, the nitty gritty details. I don't know if I I know this game well enough to give it a full review, but I will say my initial impressions was not super negative. I I was having fun with it. I thought, you know, I, I I guess my main critique was I wish there were more things to build because it feels just a little bit too much like a map painter where you just march around with soldiers and conquer territories. And I was hoping for a little bit more of a crusader Kings experience, which this, this is not. Um, but I, I don't want to monopolize the discussion. I guess, why don't we, you know, Tortuga, what can you, can you kind of share some of your thoughts around this game and kind of what your impression has been? Yeah, sure. I, I first of all would say that the, the reviews that have been, I mean, the review score of 39% is obviously completely undeserved. And I don't want to say that it's just kind of maybe the way the Steam system works, that people either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. They don't give it themselves a rating. I'm pretty sure if you ask most of the people who give it a thumbs down, they also would say it's not a 39% game. But uh, this might be also, there's some second order effects, I would say, going in here. It's not just the game which people are voting on. It's the DLC policy and like maybe uh, people just kind of trying to make a, some kind of statement about paradox in general. Maybe they don't like the way things are going. Uh, This could be a transitional period for paradox where they're trying to go a little bit more mainstream. We saw this a little bit with hearts of iron four. They want to appeal to like less hardcore strategy people. I think, I mean, I I'm putting words in their mouths, but it appears that their games are going to towards the simplistic. Um, Although it's hard to say that with the apparent depth I think that people don't really see the depth in Imperator Rome, and maybe that's one of its flaws is all the pop system. I played for, I probably played for about 10, maybe a couple hours over that, 12 hours or so. And I didn't really interact with the pop system almost at all. So, you know, people could very easily play for, let's say you wanted to refund it after like two hours. You may not even have noticed the depth and it, and you may not have been drawn in at that point enough to consider, I mean, enough to, to keep the game. Um, so I would say that the game, I, I don't also want to make a full review. I wouldn't make a full statement about it until I played, usually until I play a game for like 50 hours, then I feel a little more comfortable. But my initial impression has been that, yeah, it's, it, it looks like it kind of feels like a mod for EU4. That's how I felt about it immediately was this feels like a mod for EU4. And I like EU4, so that's a good thing. But if people are saying that, you know, there's a lot of complaints have been about that it's a little bit bland. I think that speaks to what you were saying about it's just a map painter right now. Um, And I imagine that Paradox will start to move (laughs) very quickly to start showing off the complexity that's already there. Um, But let's bounce this over to Jean. What do you think? Well, I... So I have very positive reviews uh, of the game and I, I put out a, uh, a review and a lot of people uh, disagreed and uh, there was a lot of people saying, what are you talking about? Like, like uh, Matt, you were saying the Magus system was broken that they were saying. Um, I was kind of like reflecting on this for quite a while. So 
I, and, and I know, Matt, you mentioned a couple of good points on Twitter. Um, and I guess when I break it down is this game is a brand new game. It literally just released uh, about two weeks ago. And it's a brand new game. It's not going to be as deluxe. It's not going to be as big as as uh, EU4 or Crusader Kings because those games had years of DLCs of a $9.99 DLC or $20 DLC uh, every couple of months. So when you come into EU4, it's going to be, I mean, it's it's a massive game, especially to get all those DLCs. The way I kind of look at it is you can get the EU4 experience, which is, is incredible. But if you're coming in brand new to EU4, you're going to drop $251. That's with the current 10% discount, $251 to get that EU4 experience. Wow. If you want to get Imperator, which is not as... By the way, you're just that statement is just going to get more people angry at Paradox. <laughs> and I don't think that's a defensive of Imperator Rome for what it's worth. But, you know, and, you know, like Imperial Rome is uh, 40 bucks. It's not as fleshed out as the other ones. And it's not going to be for quite a while. This is going to be like a slow, oh, we're going to add this DLC and this DLC. And some people get upset because like, oh, this is just just a framework. They're just going to add DLCs and get more money from from us. I'm like, well, yeah. And that's okay because, you know, I pick and choose the DLCs I buy. Like EU4, I got the main game and there's some DLCs I miss and some DLCs I pick up. So you don't have to get all the DLCs. Um, but overall, um, I really love the game. Uh, there was a couple things that uh, I kind of wanted to mention um, during my review that I really liked. And some people disagreed, but the beautiful graphics. Like one thing I noticed, and I know it's a small thing, and I know some of the audience members are going to be like, you're kidding me. But when you load the screen, right, and it gives you the map view. Uh, and you zoom all the way out. And as you scroll left and right, it kind of gives you the curvature of the earth. Right. And for a lot of people, that's going to be like, so what? It's, it's just a small graphical thing. Those little things are those are like the cherry on top of the cupcake. You don't need it. The cupcake is still going to taste really delicious, but they want to just sweeten it just that little bit. And I appreciate that because it's those n- little nooks and crannies that I, I really appreciate. The graphics also were really great. I was only playing the game on medium high. And still, it impressed me. So that, along with the other big thing that I think is pretty huge, is uh, along with a bunch of other things. But I wanted to mention this is the um, the battle tactic system. Um, how did you guys feel about that battle tactic system? Because I feel it's gonna it's changing the way I guess you do battles. Is it so? I'm kind of confused because I see a lot of people talking about that, and I still, for the most part, just kind of march my army around without changing anything and smash it into another army and let them fight. Well, I mean, for me, I, uh, so is there, like, I mean, I know there's, what should I be, like, what should I be doing different? I mean, no, there's a, there's a stance, right? Like you can set your army to shock action, envelopment, skirmishing, deception, bottleneck. Is that the, the limit though of your tactical choices? Yeah. Okay. You can't do any more than that. Um, I mean, that's fine. It's just setting a stance for your army. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that per se. It's just, I don't. I feel like when I hear people talk about it, they they talk about it like it's a lot more than that. Well, I think that mixed with like the leader's capability, along with the um, uh, the military technology, uh, as well as the religion system, kind of like all meshes into a nice like uh, cake batter, you know. And you know, you kind of like, all right, I'll add this from the elite character's military experience. I'll I'll do this military tradition. I'll add this kind of military tactic. Kind of toss it up, throw it in the oven, and that's what you kind of get. 
And, um, you know, and I, I actually find myself using it a lot because shock actions, when I, I, I use that when I'm fine with taking heavy losses, but I want to kind of like smash the enemy kind of like a, do kind of like a patent kind of thing where I just smash right into the uh, enemy army and just kind of, uh, you know, basically shock them. Um, and then I did find myself switching to envelopment. Uh, I'm sorry, to bottleneck when the out- enemy outnumbered me and only had like 8,000 to their 30,000. And I kind of changed the tactics because I knew I was going to get my ass kicked if I left it out in shock action. Yeah. So, I mean, I think those are, those are valid stances to kind of add a little bit, a, a little bit of additional, um, strategy, I guess, to the, to the battles. You know, you mentioned a couple of different systems in the game that we should at least mention cursory, uh, sort of, because I think it has to do with some of people's criticisms. So there's this military, essentially there's a couple of different tabs or whatnot that you go throughout uh, the game as you play it. And, you know, you set your government, which includes a bunch of different, you know, governmental positions, and you basically sort of almost in like a Crusader King's way, you assign people to those positions and... Uh, how good they are at different traits impacts what kind of bonus they give to your military or to uh, your, um, I forget what it's called, the oratory power, the charisma, basically. Or there's like a religion one and there's like a uh, administrative one. And they all, they give you different perks or bonuses based on how good the person is at that job. But that's basically what it is, right? Like you assign someone to be the master or the guard. You assign someone to be the marshal, which I guess would be like a general of the army or something. Um, and, and these different things. And they influence kind of how much you earn within those different categories. Um, but that's the extent of kind of your governmental control. There's governors as well, which influence like, you know, the, the output of, of, a, of a country uh, or a or region. Um, but I think where most of the people have their criticisms are this military technology, religion, and sort of economy overview. And, and what that is, is like, so there's this military tab in the game where you choose what are we going to research, right? Are we going to research print capes, which give us heavy infantry discipline? Are you going to research triremes, which give you uh, morale bonuses to your your, your navy? Um, and what you do is you spend military tradition, which you earn over time, on each one of those research items. And it basically is just allocating uh, a score, a military score, that you get to different bonuses, and that's kind of the extent of your military tradition bonus or military, not technology, but your military tradition bonus. Then you get other perks that can be used uh, toward technology. And it's sort of the same thing. You earn research bonus, research points over time. That's influenced by like the different governmental officials that you have in charge. And then you can use that to research basically perks that you get within, um, you know, religion or charisma or or oratory, whatever you want to call that, Um, or, you know, your military or whatnot. So essentially your technological research comes down to spending points on different things that give you perks and you instantly get whatever you research. And there's no time delay. It's just once you have enough points and you research something, you have it instantly. Um, And I think that therein lies kind of the critique within technology or within the military traditions or within within religion as well. You get these religion points that you can spend to get a bonus and the bonus lasts for a couple of years and then you have to pick a new bonus. So I, I think at the end of the day, one of the big criticisms is this this thing that people call mana. And, and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here, where you get these points, 
you get a certain number of points every every year and you can spend those points and whatever you spend them on you basically just get right away and yeah. i think that's a big criticism that people have of the game and I, i'm not saying it as clearly as I, I i i think it but i think a big criticism people have is it's like okay so i get these points and then i just whatever i spend them on just instantly happens and there's no you know there's no all right, the scientist is working on this and there could be a breakthrough, but otherwise it's going to take a really long time, but maybe a random modifier will cause it to change. And now I've tied up these resources for a certain period of time so that I can't research something else. Like, you know, most strategy games, you might have a certain research capacity. Like I can only research a certain amount of things in a given period of time. And then if I want to assign them to different technologies, they can't be used on a different technology that I could research. So really the only point of tension here, it's not tying up research. It's not taking time. It's just, all right, you've got a timer and every so often the timer dings and you get to pick something new and you get that thing right away. So if if something comes up, let's say you're fighting a battle and it becomes very apparent that you don't have good enough heavy infantry, there's no sense of, oh crap, I'm already researching these three other technologies. I don't have additional capacity. It's just... Well, let me wait till my, you know, till my research clock comes up and then instantly I can get it. So it, it kind of changes where the points of tension are in the game. And I think that's, you know, one of those things that people criticize about the game is it's just sort of a, it's sort of a, you know, set your clock and wait and then you get what you need instantly and then you just go from there. I think yeah. that that's one of the main criticisms I've read. I guess I didn't feel it as much playing. Like when I was playing through it, I was just kind of interacting with these systems and it seemed fine. Um, but in retrospect, you know, when you look back at it, it's like, yeah, that is how the game works. I, mean, um, I, I would say I found this a lot when you're, well, I think a really good example is in when you're waiting to gather enough. What is it? You need one of the powers to be able to fabricate claims. And I think that one felt or maybe it's either oratory or civic. Yeah, it's oratory. That's right. Uh, and I, I think that's where it felt the most artificial to me. Um, that's probably also true with the technology. That with the oratory, to fabricate claims, you would just wait. There'd be this pool of oratory power, which you could be spending on anything. And you just suddenly, from one day to the next, you'd make a decision. Okay, I'm going to spend that on you know, this. And I immediately have fabricated claims the EU four system seemed much better to me where it'd be like a slow process. You had to build up spy points in the other country. And um, uh, somebody mentioned that basically this removes strategy from the game, that it's not like you have to think ahead. You you don't think ahead. You can just pull points and then use them whenever you want there. I would like to see. I, okay. Another thing is like when you convert pops, you can convert them or, you know, anything like that. And it happens instantly. As soon as you have the, I think that one civic power. So it'd probably be a little bit better if the because you don't on it obviously you don't conversion of population is well I mean even if it happens in like <laughs> a normal amount of time I mean, even if it happens in like ten years in the game it's probably too quickly but just because this is a game and we don't want to wait a hundred years for population in to you know swap swap over to Roman or whatever our population culture is um, yeah and I'll jump in real quick because I think that's I think the population system we mentioned that the game has pops. 
And so there's different cultures or essentially different religions that populations can have or different roles, right? You can have slaves, freemen, or citizens. And I'll go over this briefly because I don't want to totally interrupt what you were saying, but I think it's kind of important to understand. Mm -hmm. So within a pop, within a province, you can have people who are slaves, freemen, or citizens. And you can also have people who are like Hellenistic. Their culture is basically like a Greek, like Greek culture, uh, or maybe they're a part of a tribe, like a, a migratory tribe. And presumably, and I haven't really experienced this, but presumably all of those have different impacts on, you know, is the, is the province unstable? Is it peaceful? How productive is it? How is it, you know, slaves definitely have a big impact on how much, how productive your population is, but citizens have a big impact on how much research points you can get from a, from a given population. So like these different, these different pops can have different impacts on your your society on your on your country in a given region but then if you need to make changes you can simply like okay i've got a lot of people who are gauls in my province and i don't like that and that's causing problems for me so i'm just going to go into the population menu going to right click on that citizen or that that gaul and i'm just going to convert him instantly to being a roman and that's yeah. kind of like well yeah. that doesn't that that in my opinion that takes away of a lot of a lot of the tension that existed in this era. I think it would be more egregious if this was a late Rome game instead of a of a Roman Republic game. Um, when you're talking like barbarians, sort of at the gates, and they're overwhelming Rome and they're changing the culture and the makeup of Rome. But nonetheless, that's still a very that's a weird way to do it. Like I'm just going to right click, and you are magically no longer a Gaul. You are a Roman. Love me. And and that seems a little bit weird. It's kind of like um, um, it's kind of like if we couldn't do it in Iraq in uh, fifteen year or 10, 15 years. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like okay, no problems in Iraq anymore. We just right click, and they're all now pro American, and they're all <laughs> you know just magically they're all Americans now. Oh, it's the fifty first state now. Um, and that's how converting religion work. That's how changing like. I think it makes a little bit more sense within the population standpoint. Like theoretically, sure, you could turn a slave into a freeman. Like that—that that would be something you could just do. Uh, you are no longer a slave. Okay, that—that's in theory possible. Um, but for religion, that seems weird. Or for culture, that seems weird. And that was the one thing that I saw. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this because the game doesn't. I don't think do a great job of explaining to me why I would want to do it. Um, but that being said. It's just an odd mechanic. And I, and again, that's an example of, all right, you get a certain number of points because that uses, does that use oratory power or civic power? Um, but th it's these different traits that you, you just kind of get over time and you can just choose to use them however you want. And then instantly it happens. It'd be one thing if it was like use 50 oratory power to convince someone to become pro Greek culture and it's going to take five years, right? Exactly. Like that would be, that would be a different thing because then you'd be spending those points and you wouldn't be able to, you know, Maybe you could undo it if you needed to use the points on something else and you'd only get like a certain percentage of them back. That would be much more traditional strategy game than just spend points, have whatever you want now. So yeah. I think, uh, well, like you were mentioning, um, that's been, um, a lot of people have been mentioning that in the reviews. And I think Paradox have he has heard that. And let me ask you if this is kind of, pointing toward a redo of that system because in the 1.1 patch, which is nicknamed Pompeii, it's coming in the summer. They wrote 
uh, redesigning of functionality where instead of spending power for an instant result, you now spend power to nudge it towards that result over time. Do you feel I guess. Like that? Yeah, makes- I mean, it sound, I guess we'll see what it, how it actually plays, but it sounds like they're admitting that maybe that was a misstep. I don't know. We'll find out. I just, it, it seems like they took a step backwards though, because they had this system really fleshed out in EU4. I mean, they had conversions where your monk would have a percent chance. And then that eventually changed because people didn't like the random chance aspect. So that eventually changed to a fixed time based on, you know, um, how they basically changed the percentage into a fixed amount of time that you would get an exact amount towards, but it, it would happen over time, tens of years or something, you know? It seems like they, they already knew this, and I'm not, not really sure. So I, I know that people will probably like to mention when they're talking about the mana that Johan or Johan, I don't know how to say his name, but he's a he's the lead person for the Imperial to Rome project. And um, people would probably just say that maybe he likes mana. I, I don't know. If, I, I, I've tried to rationalize myself why they made some of these decisions because, I mean regardless of how many DLC they needed to get there, EU4 is an amazing game. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, why, why would you, when people are complaining about this game, maybe that some of them, a lot of them are saying it's not, it's kind of bland and DLC will help with that. But even some of the things where it's not that, it's not like blandness, it's just that they had existing mechanics in the previous game and they went away from them for reasons which are, I mean, at least to me, not entirely clear. So another big problem that, uh, well, one big thing that a lot of people didn't also like is the user interface. So I wanted to kind of get you guys feedback on the user interface because one, I I looked at some of the negative reviews and that was one of the big things. It said one reviewer, I won't mention his name, but says very messy user interface that should not have been passing pre-alpha. For example, events refer to persons by their first name, but the tooltips that are right portraying them has their surname below it. Um, and there's a couple other reviewers that have mentioned that too. So how do you guys feel about that? I'll just quickly say that I did not have any problems with the user interface. There's probably some minor things like that, but I thought it was just another paradox uh, user interface. In fact, if anything, I thought it was <laughs> good. <laughs> so, Yeah, I honestly did not think the user interface was... For me, the user interface was not a problem. But I mean, again, I've played Paradox games before. Maybe this is a, uh, you know, interesting interesting comment because I think that can bring us back to what you were talking about earlier, Tortuga. And that is... Yeah. You, you I, kind of hinted at, is this a game for the mainstream? Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to a game for Paradox's traditional fan base. And I think if you're a... And I don't, I don't mean this in a negative way. Like, I'm not... Uh, I'm not Just trying to be like a snot. A they're normies. Like, I'm not trying to be like a snooty. Like you're not really a strategy gamer. Like to each their own, right? Like I really enjoyed Hearts of Iron Four and a lot. And I know both of you had reservations with Hearts of Iron Four when it came out because it was very much not Hearts of Iron Three. Um, it was my first Hearts of Iron game that I really played seriously, and so I really enjoyed it. But I could see if you had all these capabilities and features that existed in Three, and they were all streamlined out, that you might be a little frustrated. So coming from it, from that point of view, from enjoying Hearts of Iron 4, I don't want to be someone who's like, you know, oh, this is too, too streamlined and, you know, only, you know, it's not hardcore enough, but I could see someone who isn't, isn't, you know, super into Paradox games or maybe is approaching it from a more, um, non-strategy gamer 
uh, hardcore strategy gamer where maybe they would think the user interface was a problem. Um, I'm kind of rambling and kind of losing my train of thought of what I was talking about now. So that's great. But, but essentially I, I do wonder, and, and I don't want to, monop- I've been talking too much guys. I want you to jump in, but I will add one last thing that I think gets to what we were talking about of maybe this being built for the mainstream. You remember, uh, John, you interviewed Troy Goodfellow from, uh, paradox a couple of episodes ago yeah. uh, and you were talking about imperator and something that he said in that interview kind of stuck with me. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this in any way, a negative way, but he was talking, you guys were talking about the likelihood or possibility of a Victoria three. And obviously you were trying to be like, Hey, is that coming next? And you know, obviously he can't tell you that. Um, but he was talking about the relative success of Victoria two. And, you know, he, he obviously said he didn't really know what it would take, you know, how successful did Victoria two need to be for there to be a three. He didn't know. But he did make a comment on how when Victoria 2 came out, at the time that that came out, Paradox had never had a game sell more than a million units. The most they had ever had was a unit, a game that sold a couple hundred thousand copies. And, and, and you know, I don't know what Victoria 2 did, but presumably it was in that era, era where, Victor, where Paradox was a somewhat smallish company that made successful strategy games at a certain scope. But I think it was Crusader Kings 2 was the first Paradox game to ever sell more than a million. Crusader Kings 2 sold more than a million. EU4 sold more than a million. Uh, City Skyline, which is a game of theirs that they publish, they don't they don't develop it, has sold over 7 million. Um, oh. And I think Stellaris is over a million now. It's certainly over like 400,000 already, and it's only been out a couple of years. Um, but I think it's over a million now also, or it's it's, it's getting there. So I think the point I'm trying to make and that Troy kind of alluded to is the paradox that used to exist when Hearts of Iron 3 came out, Crusader Kings, you know, hadn't come out yet. The 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 paradox that used to exist is that paradox gone. And and what I mean by that is can paradox justify making a Rome game that only sells 200,000 copies but appeases the paradox faithfuls? Or do they, as, as a much larger and more successful company now, kind of have to make some design cons- considerations to say, listen, this needs to appeal to a wider audience. This needs to have more of a maybe a, a good example of like a triple A strategy game would be something like Civ. Does it need to have more of a of a Civ type feel so that it can p- appeal to everybody and we can sell the number of copies we need to sell for us to justify doing this game now because we're a much larger company you know we've got almost 400 employees now um you know we we have to do something that's more mainstream and and is this their attempt to do that i i think it's uh different strokes for different folks kind of thing and the reason why i would say that is mainly because you know they do have city skylines i did not know it sold that many (laughs) that's pretty uh that's high up there um so you have that and that's for i would say uh uh, for, I guess, a different type of audience, not for the heavy-duty strategy uh, gamer uh, that really likes to grind into Crusader Kings or um, uh, uh, EU4. But the way I kind of look at it is, like, Imperator right now, right now, is it doesn't have as many features as the other games. But I feel like over time it will. I feel like it will have in maybe uh, a couple of DLCs where maybe, you know, a couple of years down the line, it will be as fleshed out as EU4 and it'll have so much more 
um, complex, uh, com not complexity, but it would have so much more depth than it does have now. Um, I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I feel like if you, maybe you guys can, um, uh, brush me up, but when EU4 came out and Crusader Kings 2 uh, came out, was it, it, it was kind of like this, right? It didn't have as many features. Crusader Kings 2 was very different. And actually, I was talking to Joel, who's the editor over at Wargamer.com, um, and he had a different opinion than me on this, and we were kind of chatting about it on Twitter. And he was telling me that, you know, well, first off, when Crusader Kings 2 came out, it wasn't the map wasn't as large. So I think this is correct me if I'm wrong, Tortuga. This is basically the final EU four map, right? Goes all the way to to India. Uh yeah. But the EU four one has China and this doesn't have China, so I oh, guess not. Okay. Yeah. EU four um, has Japan. I mean EU four has the whole world, right? Because you have the Conquistor. I mean you have the Age of Exploration, so Okay. So well, I, I'm no, not familiar with you for, so I guess, uh, <laughs> anyway, okay. it's basically the final Crusader Kings map because there is no China. Cru Cru China makes an appearance in Crusader Kings, but it's like is an off map superpower that can occasionally send armies to the eastern portion of the map. Um, but essentially, this is it goes all the way from Spain, North Africa and, and the British Isles on the westernmost edge of the map all the way to India, basically to the eastern border of India. That's the map. And so it's this gigantic map. When Crusader Kings 2 first came out, it basically just went to like Iran, like places in Iran. I don't think it had much in Africa other than the North African coast. Um, you know, it was not the, as large of a map. It And it had all of the various kingdoms in Crusader Kings 2, but you could not play Muslim kingdoms. You could not play pagan mm -hmm. kingdoms. The yeah. game, you very much felt like when you went into this game, it kind of felt like, well, shit, like there's all these doors to this game that are closed. I can't play half of what I might want to play. But and, I didn't see it that way. I mean, okay. when I first played CK2, I, I didn't see it that way because the game was so new. I hadn't played CK1 and... It was so interesting the way you did everything differently than EU4 or was it, it was out after EU4, right? I don't know. I played EU3 too. So it was so different than the Europa Universalis series. So it was very entertaining to me. Yeah. Um, and I think, so that's what Joel was saying when I was talking to him about this is, um, or Joe. Um, so I was talking, I was talking to him about this and I was saying, well, you know, Rome has everything from a geographic standpoint and I can play any country, right? Like I can drop into any tribe in Gaul. I can drop into any of the tribes in the Northern part of the map. I can play everyone. The game is completely open. That being said, most of those countries don't have a lot of depth to them, right? It's just generic Gaulish tribe or generic Greek tribe or generic, uh, whatever. And so I think one of the main criticisms of this game is that it doesn't have a lot of, it, it's not distinct. It's like, all right, everything's open, everything's streamlined, and you can do any country you want, but there's really no difference from playing from one to the other in many cases. And where Crusader Kings was very different, it was like, all right, only these countries are open to you, but this is a completely different game than anything you've experienced before. This is a dynasty management game. It's a little bit map painter, but not really because like the way the succession rules work, it's really about managing your family. And that was its pitch. That was what made it different. It was just a completely different kind of a game. And I didn't play Crusader Kings one either. So like I may be coming at this from a different, like a more, you know, oh, it was revolutionary. 
but I don't think Crusader Kings one got to this level that Crusader Kings two did. Certainly didn't, you know, didn't have the same resonance with a lot of people. But Crusader Kings two was like, all right, here's your dynasty, manage it, and and that was its pitch, and it was very unique, and it had a very distinct sense of itself. So even though certain doors were closed to you, like even though you could not do, play with a lot of the countries, what you could do felt very refreshing, very different, very challenging. And, you know, that, that was sort of Joe's opinion was like, hey, if they had locked down um, Rome, I would have been completely it, it, essentially what he said was if they locked Rome down, they made the map smaller, if they made the number of countries you could play smaller, but they had a lot more depth and, and sort of nuance to what governing Rome was like or to all these different countries and made them feel much more unique and, and more fleshed out. He would have been perfectly fine with that. Whereas I think my opinion was like, hey, it's cool that there's all these countries I can play, but I haven't, you know, played enough of them to know if, uh, if I feel like there's much point in playing one Gaulish tribe over the other. I'm really long winded of, of what I'm trying to say, but essentially like that, you know, his, his point of view is just that they went for breath and not depth, whereas in their previous games, they've gone more for depth than breath. Hmm. And I think in the future patch that they're coming out with, I think uh, they mentioned something where they're going to add a lot more, like you were saying, a lot more depth into it. Yeah, they're going to improve like a lot of balancing as well as, I remember it's either this patch or the last patch. I think it's the 1.1 patch where they're going to add a little bit more depth into uh, countries. I think I've read that somewhere. But I wanted to ask you about the character system in this game. So Crusader Kings 2, I really I really love that game, but I don't put too many hours into it because the learning curve is a little bit more than other uh, Paradox games, at least for me. Um, and another buddy of mine, uh, Bob, who uh, uh, is a good friend of mine, he plays a lot of Paradox games, but he hasn't gotten to Crusader Kings 2 because he feels like it, it, it takes him a lot to actually pick it up. With Imperator, he actually just picked this up, and I said, all right, compare that to other Paradox games. He's like, well, honestly... Um, I'm playing Imperator more than he's playing uh, like uh, Crusader Kings 2, mainly because he finds it much more easier to, like uh, like we were mentioning, just pick it up and go. And one thing that I did love about this game, and I'm kind of going off topic a little bit, but is I thought, like you were saying earlier, I thought it was almost like, all right, um, I took over this little country, let me go after this little country, and then just kind of expand my red across the map of Italy. And you know what's something I ran into is after I like fought my first country, I noticed certain things that I had to be like wary about, which is like there was this guy who is a pain in my ass uh, called Tremulus, right? And his loyalty was coming down to like 30%. And then I got some warnings. By the way, you probably want to watch out for this guy because he could start a civil war in your country. Mm-hmm. So I went into the character screen. I said, all right, well, this guy's pissing me off and I'm just going to imprison him. And then I looked over and I said, oh, okay, I get a penalty for for tyranny or something for that. I'm like, yeah, I can't afford that right now. Or at least I don't want that to go up. So I'm like, shit, I need to look out for this guy, but I can't imprison him. So I kind of did other things to kind of like uh, uh, disgrace him and stuff like that. So I noticed I was focusing a lot on the character system where I not didn't normally do an EU4 
or in other games, I actually stopped fighting wars in a lot of my plays because I was like, hold on, let me find out what this is going on. And what is my other character that used to be head of the civic faction? Oh man, he died, but he had offshore accounts where he had some money, but I used that money to pay off a foreign adversary. And I was like, holy shit, there's so much stuff you can do in this game. I didn't know that the character system was so rich in this game. And it, it kind of, it, it, it's very alluring. I wanted to ask you, what did, what did you guys think about the character system? Um, I liked parts of it, but I felt like it wasn't as fleshed out as CK. So, I mean, oh shit, Rome is revolting against me because my stability is negative three. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the characters don't like you. There goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. I enjoyed the scorned families concept, but I, I, I feel like it, I don't know if the Republic was the right choice of a game to try and implement a character centric game, which I wouldn't necessarily say it's character centric, but it's definitely important. Um, And what I mean by that is in a Republic where you're constantly turning over and councils are leaving and, you know, it's, it's a more of a democratically elected sort of, or at least aristocratically elected system. Characters don't mean as much as they do in CK because in CK, the game is all about managing your, dynasty your legacy your family in rome it's not it's about your country so if if the guy that i'm nurturing as being the ruler of rome gets thrown out of power it doesn't really matter because now i'm whoever the next guy is so that element of it feels a little bit less important and just kind of feels like it's a little bit of flavor for the flavor's sake without really meaning much um where i do think it, it is a little bit intriguing is on some of the revolt mechanics where like an army can become personally loyal to a general and then you can't control them and if he's not loyal to you he can kind of pull a caesar and just march on rome like that element's kind of cool but i did feel like it's like all right we've got these characters it doesn't mean a whole lot i like the idea of scorned families where it's like you have to assign uh families a certain level of prominence within rome you know they expect to have jobs within the roman republic and if they don't then they're going to get unhappy and they're more likely to revolt so like that idea as a concept is pretty cool but it didn't feel like there was a ton of depth to it and it didn't feel like it mattered enough in a republic where you know if you lose power who cares it's just the next person's up and you know to me that would that system and i really hope they get there because this is the game i want to see that whole system would work brilliantly in a Roman Empire game where it's about managing your dynasty and keeping the Roman Empire going and having Marcus Aurelius decide Commodus isn't my successor or whatever. Like that would work really well. Can you it's, get- a, it's less meaningful in a republic. Can you get to that in this game? Because I know I saw some icons for like a dictatorship or something like that. Well, there's a tyranny score um, and you can build a dictator and you can assign someone to be a dictator, which is like a temporary thing in the Roman Republic. But um, no, the game ends at, is it like 14 AD or somewhere around then? Essentially, it ends when the Roman Republic falls in terms of time wise. Okay. So when the Rome tra- when Rome historically transitioned BC, from right? Republic to Empire, I think it's it's either 14 BC or AD. I think well, it's BC because yeah, because Augustus, Augustus was already exactly. Um, sorry, Octavian. Um, when when uh, I think it's 14 BC is the stop date. So essentially, it's a game that focuses on the Republic, but I honestly think some of the mechanics work better as as the Empire, which is fine because you can play as like some of the Greek countries, and then the mechanics are a little less meaningful. Like there's you know most of the Greek countries are all monarchies, so that makes sense a little bit more. I smell a DLC on the horizon for that. <laughs> 
I, I think they they would be criminally. It would be a criminal if they don't go into the Empire period. They will go into the Empire period. How far they will go, I don't know. But they're, I mean, look at Crusader Kings. They started that game where the first start date wasn't it like eleven hundred, and they pushed it all the way forward to like seven hundred AD or eight hundred AD. I mean, they've added literally hundreds upon hundreds of years to the playability of Crusader Kings. So I would expect they will do the same for Rome. But who knows? I mean, with the review score that it is, if if it if sales tail off, you know, hopefully we don't have another March of the Eagles here where that game died on the vine. <laughs> I think it's a different thing, though, um, because this is a decent game. It's just. Hey, really man, going I enjoyed what, March of the Eagles, all right? Just going back to what I was originally saying about the uh, the direction and the, what you already followed up on, the direction Paradox is going. Like, I, I kind of wonder to myself, can't they just still stick just less people on a project and then make it that hardcore strategy game? If you have less people on the project, you don't need to sell as many titles. I don't know. I, I just, I really hope that they don't give up. Like what I saw from Hearts of Iron 3 to Hearts of Iron 4, um, by the way, I, I like Hearts of Iron 4, by the way, but I just, the direction is a little bit scary to me. I'm, maybe I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> give me my hardcore strategy games. I just but like it, to It's see. fair to say that this is not the first time that, that this, maybe, maybe the reaction they're getting now is a culmination of things coming to a head and people finally stand, saying, oh, I, I, mean, I don't want this anymore. But, exactly. but it, this is not the first game they've released that has felt like it's going that direction. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that probably people gave them a pass in the past and I don't know, I guess I'm not, uh, I'm not a sociologist. I think I don't, I can only guess what exactly the mechanics that work here and it's something really complicated, I imagine. But uh, I have this opinion just because I've seen some people who are extremely pro-Paradox supporters in my Discord actually start to say, okay, yeah, this this game is very worrisome. I'm not sure I like the direction Paradox is going, stuff like this. Um, so, I mean, if they can make titles like this and also make something like a Hearts of Iron 3, that would be amazing. But I don't know if they have that in their... Like maybe maybe that doesn't maximize their profits. And um, you mentioned sales a lot, and that was something I actually thought about a little bit. I was thinking to myself, okay, somebody was kind of defending. I don't was it even Johan himself? I don't know who it was who was defending Paradox, saying it sold well. That didn't used to be the mark of a successful game in Paradox. The mark of a successful game was the developers released their game, and it was amazing to the people who played it and that was enough i don't know i mean obviously they have to put food on the table it's naive to think that they don't need to make money they need to sell enough games but um to me i th- i feel like the focus has switched or i don't this is very i just my opinion i i want to emphasize that maybe i feel the focus is maybe it's switching from making a great game to making a, a game which sells sells well and usually there's a correlation there, but um, the focus kind of speaks to the spirit of the company. And I, I still hope it's, you know, the focus is on a good game. But this comment I heard about sales being great or whatever, people starting to talk about the sales. When you're getting in the sales numbers, that doesn't mean anything to me as a consumer. As long as, as, long as they're making a product which is going to keep their company afloat, I just want that product to be good. And I, I mean, hopefully the company also does well that's great but 
I don't have anything. I'm not invested in Paradox if they're, you know, making games that sell well. That doesn't really mean anything to me. Yeah, I part I took that comment more as just, you know, maybe a poorly worded way of trying to say the the, the people who are upset are a vocal minority and not a reflection of I don't think that's true though cuz I think first of all, I think that's uh it'd be a little disrespectful to just brush off everyone's opinion as being like a backlash or whatever. I, I think that this is a good moment for us to, or hopefully for paradox as well to really look these, this in the eye and really get to the bottom of this. And hopefully paradox has always been so transparent, which is an amazing thing about them. And I hope that they, that also continues in this process that they look at these terrible reviews and they don't have a moment where they're like, well, this is probably the vocal minority. It, it, I feel like, 5,000 negative reviews, regardless of, you know, how many games they've sold is a lot of, neg- I mean, it's, I, I don't think that they can just ignore this and say it's vocal minority. Are you guys mentioning, uh, are you guys referring to the, uh, the post he made on the forums on the, uh, April 26th? Um, was he at, I'm trying to remember what the context of that response was. Was he asked how it was selling? Like if the reviews were having an impact on sales? No, this one was like a, a Twitter post he put on and it said something about, um, I forgot the name of the post, but I, I got the content here and says to help you understand a bit more how the development of a game works, I've decided to give you a more thorough explanation on the subject, exclamation mark. I hope you will enjoy it and perhaps you will learn a few things here and there. Um, and then he goes into how a development games, you basically have to get all the features on your project locked in for alpha. Um, when you get closer to beta, another milestone I'm sure you're familiar with. Once you reach the last two months before release date, you have little or no room to add super critical changes to your game. So uh, I feel I don't know if. But does that mean they're being pressured into rushing the game out before it's ready, though, too? Is that like is that where, you know, does that go back to your your complaint, uh, Tortuga, that are they being pressured to put the almighty dollar above everything else, which they are a publicly traded company. Yeah. I mean, we're putting that out there, right? They were not publicly traded until three years ago. So they are a new ish publicly traded company that has obligations to their shareholders. Does that change internal company dynamics? They also have a new CEO. I don't know. I don't want to be too negative about it because obviously paradox has made so many of the games that I love and, I'm definitely consider myself a fan, but uh, I'm just maybe looking into the horizon a bit, and I'm a little worrisome that that might be where where it's going. So forgive me. I will me say for- it's interesting that they have five thousand reviews already, and Hearts of Iron, which is three years old, only has twenty nine thousand. So maybe it is selling really well. Yeah, I, I think it. First of all, there's um, except for the Total War series. I feel like there isn't a title that's really done this time period well. There it hasn't really been. I'm trying to think of any other. So many titles that are Republic of Rome. I don't know if they do them well, but there certainly are a lot. Like uh, I'm not going to count the hardcore ones though, like the age odd ones, like Alea. Would you count, the, would you count the Hegemony series? Have you played those? Oh yeah, I have. You're right. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was I would consider a bit uh, underexposed. I don't think that. Many people know about that one. Hegemony 3 is the only one I played of that, but I played a lot of it. I really liked it. Um, 
And I know that there's Hakta Est, whatever the expression is. That's by Ajod. I don't think a lot of people know about that. And very relevant to our current topic, there was EU, there was EU Rome. <laughs> Paradox's yeah. first attempt at this, which supposedly this is, compared to Rome, is supposed to be like the more or less the sequel or at least the spiritual successor to it. But, you know, I've seen a few people on your discord comment that they feel like this is EU Rome too. Like, well, more than the, EU, uh, they feel like this is directly coming oh, out. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, this is absolutely the game, which is supposed to be EU, EU Rome done right. EU Rome. I, I have a hard time remembering it. It's been like 10 years or something since I played it. And I didn't play it that much because um, honestly, I don't think it was that good of a game. I, and I think that even the Paradox staff would probably admit that there was a lot of issues with it. Um, they moved on from that very quickly. That was almost like a March of the March, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where like it had a lot of bugs and issues at launch. They yeah. got a lot of flack for it when it came out. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons people didn't necessarily know if they were going to go back to Rome. And I think over time, it developed a little bit of a cult following. Uh, but it certainly didn't have a super successful launch when it came out. No, I don't think, I think the game even, I don't remember. I, I probably played it maybe for a year after it was released. I just don't remember. I don't have very positive um, memories of it. So, yeah, I, I mean, want- I, so I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm enjoying my time with Rome. Admittedly, it's not been a ton of time with it. I can see some of the criticisms of like, Oh, instantly things happen or, um, you know, some of the stuff being maybe a little bit overly streamlined, like, oh, I can just instantly convert a pop. That That is a little bit, when I stop to think about it, that is a little bit of a, you know, it kind of makes you chuckle. Um, that being said, my experience in playing it has been very positive. I will, t- I think, you know, I know we've been talking for a while. I don't want to just kind of keep going round and round in circles, but I do think one of the the comments that you had earlier, Jean, about, you know, this game just released and it's going to become something awesome. I think there's also a little bit of, of, I don't know if resentment is the right word, but a criticism of that approach bubbling to the surface in this game as well. And some of the negative reviews where people feel like you release a game that isn't complete. I wonder though, because I don't, I didn't get the sense that it wasn't complete. I, I certainly got the sense that there were design decisions that maybe people didn't agree with. But I didn't get the sense that like, oh, this feels an, like an incomplete game, maybe a little bit more shallow than I would than I would hope. But I wonder, do you think Paradox is shifting? Because I do feel like there's been a little bit of a pivot in their DLC strategy. Do you think they're pivoting so that like, hey, if we're going to be a mainstream company, we're going to make our, our 1.0 version more vanilla so anybody can pick up and play. And then as DLC comes out, that's where we cater to our, our audience. That's a, that's a great question. Because that's what they did with Hearts of Iron, right? Like, Hearts of Iron came out, it was pretty sanitized. And yep. they've been trying to add depth and complexity to it, especially, like, with Man the Guns, which came yeah. out recently. They're trying to make it more hardcore, but that's years after it came out. So the base game is what has to appeal to the masses, because those are the people who care most about buying the, a game when it first comes out. They're probably less likely to pick a game up four years later. But then the DLC is where they really say, all right, Paradox Hardcore folks, here's what you want. That could be a nice mix. And I know some people are going to get like really upset about that. It's like, no, I want complexity on the vanilla 1.0 release. I'm, I'm actually kind of fine with, you know, a vanilla 1.0 that 
it's not bare bones, but it doesn't have as much features as, you know, um, a game that has eight or 10 DLCs adding more and more depth. Eric, like, uh, like you were mentioning earlier, Hearts Iron 4, hoping, uh, when it came out, it was, not as it was with Hearts Iron 3. We're just going to keep referring to him differently. It's going to be Eric half the time. It's going to be Tortuga the other half. <laughs> call me, just call me Sexy Neckbeard. Oh, God. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it first came out, there was a, a couple of things I did not like is um, it kind of got simpler, I would say. It, they took out a couple of systems and especially dealing with armies and uh, managing like going from divisions to cores to armies to army groups theaters and all that stuff so they took some stuff out then slowly across the dlcs start adding a little bit more and a little bit more and now this game has a lot more depth they started adding some of the army stuff back in which is really a nice treat and i've been playing it more often so i feel like there are kind of course correcting. And I think that's the big thing. You know, one thing that I always uh, noticed is there's always people that whenever the owner of the company or founder of the company dies, it's like, oh, I'll give it about six uh, six months. The company's going to fall apart. And it, it's not about making mistakes. You need to make mistakes. Mistakes are vital, but it's how you course correct those mistakes. And I feel like Paradox is doing that. Well, Hearts Iron, it came out and it was uh, lacking certain features. So they course corrected with DLCs. And I feel that with this game, they're doing exactly that. This game come out, there's a lot of people uh, making, giving feedback. I don't like this. I don't like that. And already you can see Paradox is responding. They came out with a 1.01 patch, which is already out, making a whole bunch of fixes. A 1.1 patch, which is going to fix out a lot of things like it's going to add uh, tons of uh, more features that a lot of people have been mentioning complaining about in the reviews so i really come i really think it comes down to you know um i don't think they're losing their way i think they're course correct and they're coming out with a product seeing well i don't like this i don't like that okay you guys don't like this we're gonna course correct we're gonna add this uh free update we're gonna improve and take out all the stuff that you guys don't like I think where paradox is gonna go is what decisions they make from here and from what i see in these uh patch notes they're making the right decisions I just want to say that that's really good. I really like to hear that. Uh, it's a good thing for all of us to remember that it is true. I already mentioned that Paradox is very transparent. And it's true. They really they really are trying to course correct. So I'll let you speak historical. But Well, uh, I was going to say, I mean, I, I, think that's, I think that's great as long as those patches are free. And mm-hmm. I think what makes me a little bit nervous, and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about, Tortuga, is that, I think part of what makes me a little bit nervous is if the new model is to release a, and and I'm not saying it is, but this seems to be the impression of like hearts of iron of Stellaris a little bit and of, of, um, of Imperator. And I'm saying this as someone who enjoyed each one of those at launch. But if the perception is from, from folks that the new model is to release a sanitized game for the masses. And then over the years build in the complexity I think there's a very real risk, if that is the model, that you don't have a clear enough, unique enough impression of what the sanitized version or the the 1.0 version is to lure enough people in to buy it, to play it for what it is. Because remember, if you're asking someone to spend $40, you can't ask them to spend $40 on what it might be a year from now. You have to ask them to say, you're spending your money right now I'm buying it for what the game is now. 
not for what it will be. If, if I'm buying for what it will be, I'll buy it in two years when it's on Steam sale, and then I'll pick up the DLC then. So when you're asking someone for $40 now, you're asking them to buy the game as it is. If the perception is that the the new game when it comes out is is not going to be something that is really unique or not going to be something that is deep enough, but then over time, if I spend $200, I'm going to get a really great experience, there's a real risk you're going to turn off the new folks because they're just not going to think that there's enough there. It's not unique enough. It, it doesn't tell me a story in the way that Crusader Kings very clearly has a very uh, clear sense of what it is. And then you're going to turn off your your loyal followers who are going to get annoyed that they don't ever get the game they want until they've spent $200. And I think that's a risk long term because I never got that sense from Crusader Kings and maybe it was because I was in it from the beginning. But like I got Crusader Kings, I really enjoyed it. The Sword of Islam expansion came out, I really enjoyed that. And they kept layering on new and new experiences, and it was almost like a subscription service, right? It was almost like a World of Warcraft. We're like, okay, yeah, I'm spending $20 a year on this thing, but it just keeps getting better and better and keeps getting refreshed. But I always had a positive experience from the very beginning, so I, I was willing to keep funding the game as it evolved. I have no problem with Paradox's DLC strategy. If their opinion is that they're going to release you know, however many DLCs a year, and it's going to evolve the game over time, and, you know, let's just be real. You're not going to develop a game consistently for five plus years if you're not still making money on it. And DLC is a way that you can justify continuing to enhance a game over more than half a decade. And I'm perfectly on board with that. I know some people aren't, but I am. But the problem is you have to make version 1.0 worth that initial investment. And I think increasingly people are becoming to, are, be, are, are starting to feel like maybe that's not the case. And if you don't get to the experience that you want... For two years and for a hundred dollars in, that's a problem. The only thing about the one dot release is like one release is always going to lack a lot of features. Um, you know, it's not going to be as uh, fleshed out as a five and a DLC uh, enriched game. So I feel like, I mean, they did release this game. Um, it's not going to be as big as EU four with all the DLC. So I, I wonder if like our perception of strategy games have changed. Cause I feel like when Crusader Kings two came out, like you were mentioning earlier that it was, it didn't have a lot. I mean, you can take uh, over uh, a couple of families, some, a couple of dynasties, and then over the course of DLCs, they expanded the Islam. Mud. Well, let me just clarify for Crusader Kings two. It was very feature-rich, deep. And what I mean by that is the scope was limited to Catholic. I think it was Catholic and Orthodox countries. So the scope was limited. But within what you could play, it was very deep and complex. Okay. And it, so I think the concern I have is if you say instead of going deep, we're going wide. If you go wide, it's going to feel very vanilla-y and not worth the time. Okay. Because you won't have the mechanics to engage with. And, and I guess my point is, like, I don't know if I agree with you, Jean, that you when when a game releases, you shouldn't expect to have a lot of features. Like, again, if you're asking me to spend $40 on a game, it needs to be worth $40. You can't tell me it's going to be worth it a year from now. You just then I'll spend my my money a year from now. Don't offer it for sale at that point. Like, I again, I enjoy my time with Imperator. I just worry that if if we get into this like, oh, don't worry about the 1.0 version, you know, that's that's not what you're really going to experience, then what? 
Like, why, why is it for sale then? If that, it, I don't think that can be your argument. I don't think your argument can be, it will become better. Like, yes, DLC may make it a better game over time. That's great. Enhance it and make it better. But don't tell me that it's okay that the version 1.0 sucks. No, no. Because I, I just spent $40 on it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think of it that way. Um, I, like, for me, when I reviewed a game and when I made my final judgment, I was like, would I spend $40 on this today? Based on the way it is, not like uh, not a year or two away, but I'm like right now, would I spend $40 on this? And like my immediate reaction is like, yeah, I really love this game. I think about it when I'm at work and, you know, my commute, I'm like, how am I going to get uh, this guy off my back and try to kill out this character? And that's like, to me, is what the definition of a good game. I mean, it doesn't appeal to everybody. Like every, it's different strokes for different folks. You know, like uh, my friend loves uh, World in Flames. I find it, it's a good game. It's, I like Axis and Allies more. And some people are going to say with that, dude, are you serious? You like Axis and Allies? casual. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like I, there's different strokes for different folks. And I feel like that's what it comes down to. For me, I really like the game. I think, for, for, uh, you know, um, for me, like 40 bucks, this would be, uh, for me, at least a must buy for me. Some people might not feel that way. Some people are looking for something else. And... I, Paradox is a big catalog and tons of mods. So if you're like, well, this is not the Rome game I dreamed of. I want something EU with a Rome tinge to it. The cool thing about Paradox games, I'm sure there's probably EU4 mod out there for Rome that they could probably get in and so it would be a mod. So it's free. I like the game as it is now. Forty dollars. I thought. I honestly thought I was like, I love this game. Forty dollars, no problem, because I'm going to sink in hundreds and hundreds of hours to this game on the way it is now. And my friend Bob always mentioned this. He's like, if you kind of take that forty dollars and if you put in a hundred hours and you divide that in, that's literally cents per hour for the game, or maybe a dollar. Trying to min max your money there. I, I don't disagree with you. I and I was playing a little bit of Devil's Advocate earlier because I do enjoy the game and I think it's it's entertaining for me. I think my main point was if the perception within the fan base, however, becomes that you won't get the experience you want until you spend a hundred plus, that's going to be a problem for Paradox. It's going to be a problem if Paradox's reputation becomes you have to spend 100 plus to get the deep strategy game you want. It's very different if it's like over time it'll get, you know, it'll get deeper, it'll get broader, but there's a very good experience from day 1. That's fine. And then that DLC model works and I think that's why it worked for EU4 and I think that's why it worked for CK2. But if the reputation becomes you don't get what you want until you spend six figures and wait years and years, well then Paradox is going to run into some challenges. And and I can see it feels like it followed that model for Hearts of Iron, where it was like very bare bones at first, and then you know complexity and depth was added to appease some of the hardcore base. I think you could see a similar sort of trait with C- with Stellaris, uh, where the game was kind of sanitized at launch and was sort of bare bones, and then they start dig- digging into some of the deeper mechanics. And I think you're going to see that with Imperator. And I just worry because I enjoy all of these games, and I and I enjoyed each one of those at launch as well. But I just worry if that's the perception, what does that mean for Paradox long term? Because I think Tortuga brought up a great point. I think this is this is the moment that a lot of gamers stood up and said, not again. This is, you know, this is the moment where they they're making their stand in terms of reviews and 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 complaints. And they're saying 
you know, fool me once, fool, fool me twice, you know, you're not going to fool me three times. And at least that's their, their feeling. And, and again, I don't necessarily agree with it, but that seems to be what a lot of the community, where the, a lot of the community is at. And that poses some problems for Victoria three or hearts of iron five or CK three or, or whatever. Um, and, and I don't know if it's fair or not, right? Like, I don't know if it's people unrealistically thinking CK three has to be as deep at launch as CK two was or is now. Like, that's not realistic. You're not going to get a game that is, you know, what is it, six, seven years in at launch? On the flip side of that, it shouldn't feel like they pulled all the features out of it, and it's just, uh, you know, a skin to build on later either. So, I don't know. It's, it's. I think Paradox is in a a weird situation where they've got this large new fan base of mainstream folks and they've got the hardcore fan base that probably drives most of their DLC sales and they have to figure out how to appeal to two very different audiences. I feel like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Cause like, I kind of feel, and I don't want to use this example cause it's terrible. Reminds me a little bit love Blackberry. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is Blackberry released a very good business product. It got picked up by the mainstream and then they got screwed into a situation where it's like, well, are you going to appeal to business or are you going to appeal to consumers? In the industry, 90% of it was with the consumers and they didn't really change. They just kind of kept rolling the same thing out and eventually competitors just stripped it all away. Paradox doesn't have the same problem, right? That's not the cell phone market. It's not It's not a huge multi-billion dollar, like the strategy industry isn't big enough to to have that happen to them. But it's a similar situation, I think, where some of their games were built, like CK2, I think, was built with a hardcore in mind, and it got picked up by the mainstream because of the storytelling and the dynasty mechanics that I think tells a very appealing story to everybody. And that kind of changed the tr- the, the course of the company, I think. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with you. The one question I do have is like, Going back to like, if they're damned, if they do, if they're damned, they're damned if they don't. I wonder, like, you Crusader Two is really fleshed out. There's a lot of stuff, especially uh, and including EU Four. They're very fleshed out games. Right now, they would appeal to uh, strategy gamers by adding uh, DLC, another DLC. But eventually, uh, you're gonna have those strategy gamers that are gonna be like, "Look, you need to make an EU Five the." You know, the graphics need to be up. Uh, you need to kind of, you know, add more graphics, add more capabilities, add more stuff to the engine. You need a new game. And they come out with EU5 and it's and it's going to be like you like you were mentioning earlier. It's not going to be as feature rich as uh, CQ2 or EU4. And I, I feel this is kind of like very similar to like, even though they're adding stuff, the it's only a matter of time before people say, yeah, this is nice. You need something more. And I, I, I worry if, because eventually you're going to have to have an EU5 and you're eventually going to have a CK3. And I feel like it's going to be in the same spot Imperator is going to be. I think what they need to make sure they do is it needs to be deep. It doesn't need to be broad. It needs to be deep. They do not need to have the same length of campaign. No one's going to complain if it's, well, very few people will complain if they strip 300 years out of the history of CK and go back to the original start dates. Um, you know, but it needs to have deep, meaningful mechanics with regards to your dynasty management, because that's the core selling point of CK is dynasty management. So they need to understand what is it about CK that people really resonate with and really like, 
and what have we added through DLC that is not core to the experience. And they need to focus on the core experience so that they're telling a new, meaningful, deep story. And and then, you know, you can layer on things with DLC over time. I think what they did with Imperator was they built a good baseline where everything was was included, but it wasn't included to the depth of, of some of their previous releases. I think that is part of the mistake is you can't just go for like, we'll include everything, but not very deep. You have to go with, we're going to tell the story that we want to tell with this game fundamentally in a deep and meaningful way. And the ancillary stuff isn't going to be in yet. And we'll add that later. Whereas I feel like with Imperator, they did the opposite of that. They said, we're going to include everything, but the depth and the meaning isn't quite all there yet. So kind of rounding this out, I wanted to kind of like ask you both, like if you had to give feedback to Paradox right now, like where to take Imperator and possibly future products, what kind of feedback would you give them? Let's start out with Eric. Hmm, that's a good question. Let's let's not start off with me. I need a second to think about that. I think what they should do is they should make sure, and this needs to be free patches. This can't be DLC. DLC can do other things. I think what they need to do is they need to say, we are going to make ro- playing Rome feel like playing Rome. They need to pick hmm. five or ten countries that are already in the game They need to say, we're going to make Carthage feel like you're playing Carthage. And it is going to feel distinctly unique to playing as Rome. And that is going to feel distinctly unique from playing as um, the Greek successor states. And in my opinion, that's what the game should have been at launch. And then you layer in like, oh, we'll include the Gaelic tribes as playable countries later. Or, oh, we'll include the Spanish tribes as playable countries later. That, that, That would have been what I would have done at launch as much as possible. I think they need to do that and they need to, they need to do that as free. I completely agree. First of all, I'm not going to just piggyback on you and just say the same thing, but I I completely agree that Rome didn't feel very different from, you know, another nation necessarily, but um, the other thing, gosh, Oh my God, it slipped away. What was there? (laughs) Well, I do think also, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you go. No, no, if you figured it out. No, I lost it again. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, wait, I got it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, I, I, I do think they should they should do what they're already doing, apparently, and add some time delays to some of the, the decisions where, like, I'm going to spend mana on this thing and make it not instant. So, like, there needs to be sort of a time commitment um, element to these things where it's like, if you're spending your points here, you can't be spending them somewhere else and your points need to be tied up for a certain amount of time. So like adding some of those time delays, I think are important. And then the same, they need to do the same thing with like how you change your populations, right? Like I shouldn't just be instantly able to change someone from a migratory tribe civic to a Greek. Like that just, that's dumb. Okay. I remembered it now. It was that they should probably have a better way of showcasing the complexity behind the scenes. Because people think it's a little bit simplistic. This might also maybe pair in with um, making Rome feel more like Rome. But if you have all these different... I mean, because if you think about the history of Rome in this time, it's dominated by these monstrous personalities like Marius. All these different personalities you can think of, even like Caesar. We don't really... I don't really have that. I don't feel like there's the... If the pops are all there... And there's this whole family system and all that, and they can build off of the CK2 family stuff. I didn't ever really feel like I was 
I knew what I was doing with, um, with the individual characters, just trying to keep, okay, I need to keep this guy loyal, but I don't really know what it did. Just it silenced this little disloyal character pop-up I was getting, you know, but I didn't really feel the characters. And so, yeah, I, I think the complexity is already there. They just maybe need to showcase it to the user a little bit better. What about you, Sheen? So I don't, I would say if my feedback, I would probably, uh, I want to retweet Matt's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I think you kind of like, you hit it out of the ballpark. I think that's a really great kind of thing. And that would, I think would satisfy both because taking your feedback country in a couple of countries, you appease the strategy gamer, but, and you also kind of, so people will be like, yeah, this is the Rome game. This is what I want. And honestly, I play Rome right now, and that's all I'm playing. So if they came out with just Rome and maybe Carthage, I would have, you know, I don't play any other country uh, as of yet right now. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't have seen a, any kind of difference. And then it would add a little bit more depth appease a lot of those other uh, negative reviews. Yeah, I, and then adding DLCs for different countries because, like, like you were saying, the Gaelic tribes. I wouldn't get a D- Gaelic tribes DLC, but there are tons of people that I know. Um, I just took a history course where people were like, "Yeah, I love the Gaelic tribes. There's so much history there." I'm like, "That would have been a perfect DLC for that person." So I, you know, I think that would have been really. Um, I think your 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 path would be probably the best uh, feedback to go down. And it, and it's hard, right? Because like. TJ Hafner, who's someone who's on Three Moves Ahead a lot and someone I, I follow a bit, he he's a huge one. He's one of those people who's really into the Gaelic tribes, like the the Celtic traditions and whatnot. So he was thrilled that he could play them out of the gate. And I think he had a much more positive opinion of Imperator than a lot of the other folks out there. And so like when you say, oh, well, you don't need to play those. Like, yeah, there's a risk there. You're going to upset some people by doing that potentially. So, you know, it, it, it's a balancing act. But I, I do think, like, if, if I'm playing as Rome, being more militaristic, but with this whole needing to convince the Senate to do things, should sort of be like the story that I'm kind of having to play. When you're Carthage, it's a mercantile state. So, you know, you might get pressure to reduce your military budget. And yes, you want to build your empire, but it's not all about just building the empire. It's also about making money. So, like, make that a central experience is that you're being pressured by the family members for them to be happy they have to be getting rich so to get you know for you to have a stable carthage your folks need to be getting rich because like each that's one of the things i think is kind of cool about the game is the characters each have a uh a wealth like they each have a certain amount of money that they themselves own so like you could certainly tie that to the happiness of Carthaginian senators or family members is based off how much money they have. And maybe that doesn't matter as much to a Roman. And maybe that's a way you help to, you know, so you have an unstable Carthage when you're not making enough money, but Rome really just cares about other things like expanding or other things like that. So like, I think those are some ways you could think about making the experience different, even though they both have a Senate, they both are sort of representative democracies. It does tell the story authentically how Rome and Carthage are different. So one other uh, last thing I wanted to ask you guys was the mercenary system. And I wanted to ask you guys about the uh, trading system. If you guys had a kind of like, how do you guys feel about those systems? Do you feel like they're, do they work in this game? Uh, do you need to flesh out the trade system more? Because uh, there's some pros and cons to both that I've seen. 
Tordy, why don't you share your thoughts first? I've been speaking probably an hour and a half of our, uh, our two hours <laughs> already. Well, it's mostly because I, I don't feel like I have a, I'm just nervous. To, I, when I do a review, I normally try to spend like 50 hours in a game. So I really like to know everything about a game before I make these evaluations. Although I guess it's a very fair way to evaluate it based on 12 hours because, <laughs> you know, maybe I don't know the game perfectly, but I have an opinion at this point, which other people around this much gameplay might have the same opinion. Um, as far as trade goes, I, again, I, I just compare these things to EU4. I feel like the EU4 system had these trade nodes and there was a lot of complexity to this. I, I don't know if it's maybe, it was a lot of complexity, but not, not a lot that the user could do. I feel like it's okay. I don't have a strong opinion on it. And the mercenaries thing, I, I actually have not, they probably aren't done well because I have not used them. I always just use my army. So <laughs> I just I haven't used mercenaries while we were playing for the first time. And yeah, okay, I so realized I, when you, when you get rid of them, you have to pay them off. And I bankrupted myself. <laughs> and then a Roman I, revolution started and then another country invaded us. Oh, and by the way, I've already <laughs> lost Rome and lost since we started this stream. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I think that the mercenaries thing probably needs to be uh, something I look more at before I get a good opinion on it. But at least when I was playing as Rome, I didn't use them. That seems kind of, Okay, go ahead, Matt. I don't have much to say about mercenaries because I don't. I don't really. I literally just use them for the first time. Um, I feel like trade is. I kind of agree with you, Tortuga. It's kind of like, okay, like I don't. I don't feel like I really understand it. It's just kind of like, all right, if I do a trading thing, I'm gonna get a bonus in this try or in this in this province, right? Like uh, maybe I get a bonus to population growth. Maybe I get a bonus to. Uh, military discipline because for some reason a certain good makes military soldiers more disciplined. Um, I, I I don't really feel strongly one way or the other about it. I kind of feel like it's an area where they probably could do a DLC to make it more complex or add a little bit more meaning to it. But currently it's just kind of like based on the size of the, of the city or the province or whatever, you get a certain number of trading routes you can establish and it allows you to move resources around that give you certain perks and okay i mean whatever like that's fine i i don't really care i mean if i was playing as carthage maybe it would mean more to me if i was playing as a trading empire but i'm mostly playing as rome uh, a little bit as greece and they're fine I, I would like to see them fleshed out a bit, but I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. It's not something that I, I don't think is, it's not something that's a problem and it's not something that's a huge bonus. It's just sort of something that's there that I interact with and that I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. But I do think is, is ripe for them having like a, you know, with CK2, they had like a Venice expansion that went a lot more into like those kind of trading mechanics. And I think they could easily do that with Imperador. And I think that would be a very appropriate type of thing to expand on at a later date. I would, I would say with the mercenary system for me, um, I really did like the mercenary system. I didn't think I was going to, there was one DLC where they did actually talk about it a lot. And I, that's where they kind of won me over because there was this one DLC where they talked about it. And that really kind of psyched me out where they mentioned if you cannot pay the mercenary army, like you can't afford them, eventually, you know, you lose money and, you know, they can actually switch sides. And I thought that was pretty cool because in real life, that's probably what would happen to a Merc army. You know, like, you know, your private military contractor is like, well, if you can't pay me, the other guy's going to pay me. So, yeah, we're going to switch over. 
And so that that was pretty cool. Uh, I did find it very interesting that I had to pay them off in the end. And uh, um, it, it was really, I, I really also did enjoy it because the mercenary army, I, there was, I think, one that was like 8,000 men. And I was like, all right, I'm going to choose this army because they're cheap. So I'm going to choose that. But the leader there was kind of like crap. So I just used him as cannon fodder. And I was just, uh, there was another army I used that was, was also, I think, another 8,000 men. This one had a good leader, and I, and I constantly used them as cannon fodder. But the cool thing about this one was they developed more experience as I used them as cannon fodder. And then, I, and then I went over to the Union screen, and I discovered that you can actually take the mercenaries and then bring them into a legion. You can actually employ them and bring them in directly into your army. So I thought that was pretty cool because instead of using that as cannon fodder, you can actually have them as regular troops. So hmm. I did like. Yeah, we should do that with the German tribes, <laughs> and and yeah. then you know we'll get rid of our Italian troops. <laughs> Maybe that'll work out for us. We can let them settle in parts of Roman provinces. We can give them jurisdiction over part of Roman provinces, and but but no, seriously. I mean, I think you know when you're hearing you talk about that because I haven't really interacted with them. It actually, kind of reminds me of my experience with mercenaries, at least when I was first playing CK. I, I, I think that's how they work there. I have a, an opinion now. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think the trade is uh, is something that could be a lot more fun. Um, like I'm trying to imagine. I know that trade in the Mediterranean was very influential. It really dictated who was wealthy and who wasn't. So. I don't have any, I never got that impression from it. I know that there's a commerce income, but I don't even know how it's affected. I don't know what, I, I knew we have your trade goods, but I'm not even sure if those affect your commerce income. Can you have like a trade route between something like Rome and, you know, the far East? Well, not the far East, but at least somewhere further East. Can they import things which are valuable Will there be anything like that, which gives it more of a an ancient times Mediterranean trade situation? There's definitely trading with different provinces. I don't know how far. Like, I, I don't know if there's like on the other side of the world you can trade with someone. Yeah, but uh, you can do. Are you talking about the trade goods, or are you talking about like there's some abstract trade going on? Oh no, I'm talking about the trade routes, the goods. Yeah, the trade routes. I don't feel like that's that should not be all of the, what trade is. Because none of the, I don't think any of that's really tied to money. That's just tied to a bonus. But I know that a lot of income was basically trade. People trading on the Mediterranean, that was a very influential way to make money. Well, it was, I mean, Carthage was a merchant empire. That's where it got its power. It was not a militaristic, you know, go out and conquer everybody. It was, you know, I haven't, played, I haven't played as Carthage. Has anybody played as them? <laughs> I haven't either, but I know like I, the game mechanics. I'm pretty sure, based off people I've read who have played it. I don't think it's any different. Um, oh, that, that's yeah. my point. Is like it should feel like your primary objective as Carthage should be trade, right? Like and and military conquest second. So that's where I think there's little opportunity for them to like figure out how do we make each one of these feel unique. And I think that's one of the main complaints. It's just that there's not a lot of difference between different countries. Hmm. Like they've got these different government types, right? They've got monarchy, they've got uh, aristocratic republic. I think there's like an oligarch republic, um, but it doesn't. It's just it all feels kind of samey. Yeah. But anyway, I know we've been going for like two hours or so, so 
I know I said at the beginning, let's not talk about U-Boat too much because I don't want it to be a two-hour episode. Well, it was a two-hour episode, <laughs> mostly of me rambling. So hope I didn't monopolize and, and prevent you guys from saying what you wanted to say. You know, usually on these these podcasts, we do talk a little bit of alcohol. Tortuga, I don't know if you've consumed any alcoholic beverages of late, if there's anything you'd like to share or talk about. Actually, I'd like to drag us back to Imperial Rome one last thing. I, I would actually want, I, I don't know if you guys have, or feel comfortable doing this, but what what rating would you give Imperial Rome out of 10? And maybe like a brief phrase why that is. I would say a 7 out of 10. And I'm not like... If it was bad, I would say like a three or a four. Like I'm not one of those like review sites where like seven is terrible. I would say seven out of 10 because I enjoy my time with it. It's something that I've had fun engaging with and playing. And I'm sure I will get 40, 50, 60 hours into it and still be having fun like I was with Hearts of Iron. And to me, if I play a game 50 plus hours, that is well worth its money and then some. With that being said... It's a 7 instead of a 10 because I do think that it does lack a little bit of the charm that CK had. And I wish it was deeper in places. And I wish there was a little bit more difference between countries. And I wish the experience... I, I wish it was a little bit more unique. And and again, kind of going back to my... like, I, I want playing Carthage to feel like playing Carthage. I don't want playing Rome to feel like I'm playing the red color on the map and playing Carthage to feel like I'm the white color on the map. Like I want there to actually be a meaningful difference in my experience and I don't get that much of a sense of it. So that's why it's a seven instead of a 10. If I would have to kind of between a one out of 10, I would have to say the mid eights. So I would probably put like an 8.5 for a lot of the reasons that Matt mentioned. I really love the game. Quick learning curve, uh, beautiful graphics, faction system. I did like that. One key thing that I wanted to add was that I really like the fact that one of my I was in peacetime or wartime, but I um, had a, a army general whose loyalty was in the seventies or was kind of trailing down to the sixties or something like that. And I was just like, okay, I was I was kind of worried that this guy might eventually become disloyal and take this army with him and eventually uh, go to civil war. And the fact that I was able to take my close personal friend who had like a loyalty of a hundred three, uh, you know, three digits right there. And just inserting him right into the army, even though he was completely inept, he was basically a Burnside, no offense to Burnside, uh, some war. But being able to do that is something that I really do like because it adds that flavor of, because it probably really, you know, it probably really did happen a lot in uh, Roman times. I would say the reasons missing that 1.5 to be a perfect score is uh, a lot of the reasons that Matt said, just uh, retweeting exactly what he was saying, I feel a little bit more roman uh, versus uh feeling a little more than carthage but overall i would say i've been picking up paradox games since the 90s so deep down inside i'm every vanilla paradox game i've picked up since my first hearts iron one victoria one eu one i know what to expect when i pick up a version 1.0 and i this game was no different um in fact i feel like this game actually compared to like vicky one or Hearts Iron 2 actually has a lot more features. So I was more than pleasantly surprised as an old-time Paradox player. I just, I really did like this. They got me very motivated, very excited about this game. Honestly felt back like I was back in the 90s, you know, going to 42nd Street and picking up uh, Victoria. I kind of had that, like, excitement, which, you know, that's why I'm giving it high uh, high 80s or mid, uh, mid to high 80s. 
Hmm. Okay. Well, I, I would also give it a seven and I think it's because there's a, I mean, there's another title out right now by Slytherin. That's basically the same time period, the same kind of grand strategy thing. Um, I actually am blanking on the name, but it's, Oh no, it's something empires. What's it called? No, not yet. And I was thinking the exact same thing, but Field of Glory Empires? Yeah, Field of Glory Empires. I don't know. Uh, so I, I look at that game, and I look at this one, and... That's going to be by Ajot, the guys who made Civil War II. So yeah, but I, that's the first thing I want to say, though, for anybody who's interested in this. it's It doesn't play like an Ajot title, which is, like, huge praise. <laughs> they didn't they didn't have that really obtuse interface. They It's, like, easy. Anyway, so I'm just trying to, like, think of all the Rome games I've played, and like the first time I played Rome Total War, I was blown away. And I still feel like when I go into this and appear to Rome that it feels like a mod for EU4. And so that's why I would say it doesn't it doesn't feel like its own game. Maybe that's maybe I'm just like getting you know when you're driving down a freeway for a really long time and it's a straight road, and for after a while you start to just it doesn't even seem like you're moving anymore. It just seems like the world's moving around you and you're going zero miles per hour. I feel like I'm getting this hazy view of paradox titles. They're starting; they're all starting to blend together. It feels like it's it should all be the same game, but suddenly Imperator Rome is its own game. I don't know. Maybe that analogy didn't make sense, but what I'm just trying to say is <laughs> Imperator Rome seems like an, a mod, and maybe it's just because yeah, these are all blending together. But it didn't feel distinct enough. This probably goes back to what Matt was saying about the not having that character, and I really felt like at least. Field of Glory Empires, that Rome had more of a character. Can't really explain why. Maybe it's just because the buildings that they have, the way you interact with cities and buildings is kind of similar to the Total War series. You choose which buildings you're going to build, but it's a lot more complex. So, I don't know. I, I became more attached to the provinces in my rule, whereas when I was playing Rome in this one, it was like, okay, as we already mentioned, there's only four building types you can build, and I didn't I, I did, could not tell you what any one of my provinces was doing versus any one of the other ones. I never checked. <laughs> so I don't know. I didn't have the same. I wasn't, I didn't feel as immersed. In, yeah. And in I think title. that gets back to like, if they picked a couple of areas to really dig deep and stripped out a few of the other streamlined features and added them later, I think it would have led to a little bit of a better game. Like, is it a is it empire builder as opposed to like a map painter? And right now, the only thing I can get out of it is it's a map painter. Yeah, so you you would probably say they should do a little more internal, like not like make the nations have more to do internally. Yes, I think Stellaris had this issue as well, right? People were complaining there's not a lot to do internally yeah, Stellaris. in Stellaris. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know they'll probably hopefully they'll figure it out now. You guys feel free to say whatever you want. Go back to Imperial Rome, but I'll jump back to the alcohol question. I did not, sad as it is, considering this is the single malt strategy podcast, I did not bring a single malt beverage with me. I barely sat down after eating dinner. I just grabbed a glass of water because I, yeah, was thirsty. That's all good. I'm not actually drinking anything right now. I have oh, been what I have been uh, consuming a Lafroig ten year old uh, cask strength, uh, which is really good. It's interesting though because they kind of on the bottle they're like you should add water. They basically say like add twice as much water as you usually do, which usually I drink scotch neat and I don't add water. 
but they specifically say you should, and that's because it's initially it's basically the strength that it comes out of the cask without adding anything else or, or doing anything to kind of uh, I don't know if water downs the right word or not, but but so it's like fifty six percent alcohol, which most scotch is around forty forty five. So it's it's very strong and it's very peaty as Lafroig tends to be. So you open the bottle and it's like, oh, I'm in a campfire. You know, I can just smell the smell the the scotch and smell the the smoke in it. It's it's pretty good. I'm not a scotch reviewer. I'm not going to be like, oh, it's it's got hints of taffy with a little bit of cherry and uh, some some floral notes. Like I'm not. I don't know enough about scotch to know that. But definitely very peaty, definitely very strong, and uh, it's an interesting change of pace. I don't drink a ton of Lafroig, but I, I am enjoying my time with it. Uh, I guess that leaves me. i probably going to disappoint people, too. I had a beer earlier, uh, just one, and then I switched to uh, black coffee because, um, I don't know, it's just, I've been in a coffee mood lately. I guess it's probably because um, I had finals week, so I'm still kind of running on caffeine. <laughs> mm. And that'll do it for episode number 36 of the Light Roast Podcast. <laughs> the water plus light roast plus whiskey, you know. Mm. Irish well, coffee well, podcast. My girl hates when I, because um, like literally uh, when I bring coffee home or when I make coffee, I'd not put anything in it. It's just black coffee and I, I don't even like ice cubes in it. I just like pure black coffee, that complete bitter taste. She literally, um, I I think the first time she had it, I had it on the side. She thought I put sugar in it, and she took a sip of it, and she was, like, gagging for, like, <laughs> just, just started laughing. And I said, it's probably not good because you're pregnant. She was like, no. It's just <laughs> And your personality. No, I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> that was good. I love that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I recently started going to a, a – there's a Turkish coffee place near us, which is – they have some really good flatbreads, but the coffee is incredibly strong, but it is so good. I love strong coffee. Yeah. But cool. All right. Well, uh, this might have been our longest podcast ever looking at the clock. So I uh, appreciate right. everybody for sticking with us uh, throughout. Eric Tortuga, whatever we're going to refer to you as in this podcast, as we've tried to give you three different names throughout. <laughs> uh, I do want to thank you for coming on. I hope you'll be able to come on more often in the future. I think it's it's good to have a third person's perspective. And I think I need to talk a little less and let you guys talk a little more because I I, I like, I like, I think you, you have a, a point of view that often diverges from both Tortuga and myself. And I mean that in a completely positive way. And I think that that really is a refreshing change of pace uh, on the podcast. So enjoyed having you on and uh, look forward to having you on more in the future. Yeah. I'd, well, how about that rule of waves too? That one's got to happen. Yeah. I mean, we need to do that and that's coming out in a couple of weeks. So Jean's going to, you're going to have your hands full editing five plus hours of the last two podcasts in yeah. the next, let's say you got 24 hours, Jean, get it done. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopped up on coffee. So why not? <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh i don't have anything else to say other than uh you know i, I enjoyed the episode and the time with you guys sean you want to set us off that's about it guys i hope you guys enjoy this podcast thank you eric uh, or tatuga for joining us i hope you can join us for the next one it was awesome getting uh your feedback wait tortuga <laughs> where can people find you oh what oh yeah well tortuga power I, I'm on YouTube. 
It doesn't matter. That was the least <laughs> I'm going to sell my channel I have heard in my life. Well, the, first of all, thank you, Historical, for setting me up. But yeah, it's uh, Tortuga Power. If you search for Rule the Waves or Tortuga Power, both of them lead directly to my channel. <laughs> you can also go to YouTube.com slash Tortuga Power. Slash C slash Tortuga Power, I think. No, you can go just to Tortuga Power. Oh, really? It works. Yeah. www.youtube.com slash Tortuga Power. Thank you. The header on your YouTube channel, War Games. That's right. I, I don't know why, but every time you say Tortuga Power, I'm I, in my head. I'm thinking it's Morphin Time. <laughs> uh, it's Turtle Power, not Power Rangers. I, for some reason, my brain is thinking something else. <laughs> Turtles in a half shell. Turtle Power. Okay, <laughs> back to your conclusion there. Yeah, John, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is breaking apart like the Roman Empire. No, I, I figure we're going to leave it off right there. Oh, well, bye, people. Get out of here. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.